Welcome to a special episode of Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street. In our bonus episodes, we like to give some airtime to stories and individuals that are doing something just that little bit special. Today's bonus features Greg Mangum, founder and CEO of the awesome charity Only A Pavement Away. Coming up on today's show, Greg reveals a background in gangland London. And sort of with a cockney twang, they decided I was best suited to run the East End of London. Phil continues his struggles with name pronunciations. Somebody called Walter Reuter probably got that pronunciation wrong. Bit of a, a, a running theme on this show for me, actually. And we wonder what we were talking about that led us to this. I have uh, to admit, I couldn't deny it as I had so many of them in my mouth at the yeah. time. <laughs> All that and so much more as Greg talks us through his story, along with the amazing work that Only A Pavement Away continue to do. Don't forget to give us a like and a share across your favourite social channels. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the next edition of Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street. Today, I'm very excited to be chatting to someone who seems to have his fingers in a lot of different positive pies, including, if I'm not mistaken, being the, uh, the London Region Chair for the British Institute of Innkeeping, some general consulting across lots of different interesting things, and also, more importantly, what I'd love to chat to him about today is being the founder of a wonderful charity, Only A Pavement Away, which I'm super excited to explore. So welcome to the show, Greg Mangum. Hi, hi Phil, good to hi. meet you. Yeah, likewise, how are you doing? Yeah, pretty good, thanks, pretty good. Good, good, good. Where, where in the world are you today? Oh, down in sunny Hornchurch is where we live, so, uh, well it's not so sunny actually, so it's on the, uh, the borders of Essex and uh, Romford. Yeah, oh, you're not a million miles away from me. I'm up by Stansted, so... Um, ah, right, yeah. Uh, yeah, I used to go there a lot to get a plane, but I haven't been there for a while. Now. No, funnily, I wonder why that is. Yeah, uh, yeah well, we'll see, what, uh, we'll see what tier we go back into when, uh, when lockdown is released next yeah. week. But uh, anyway, I'm not going to get into that straight away. Was I accurate in my opening? I, I, did, I, just, I literally did some research on you, and it looked that these, these things were accurate, but you never know. Yeah, yeah, no, you were. Yeah, I'm chair of the London region for the BII, but the consult, but my consultancy then uh, we closed that down when I started only a pavement away because we couldn't do two at the same time. Right, got you. Great. Okay, well, uh, let's let's get into it. If before we get into only a pavement away, let take me all the way back to the beginning of your. How did you get into hospitality? Oh God, that, uh, yeah, that's because I got possibly four O-levels at school, and unlike my sisters, wasn't ready for university. So um, I worked at the local Schooner Inn pub, which not many people remember, but Schooner's was two restaurants, three bars, and Bernie's was three restaurants, two bars. And um, my local Schooner Inn in the East End of London on a Friday night used to do 400 meals. And it was a sort of the famous menu, a prawn cocktail, melon, soup, and then you go on to two types of steak, fish, chicken, scampi, a mixed grill yeah and so the, I had uh, a really ri- did that was did they serve a, a field mushroom and tomato with the steak yeah that's it and uh, yeah. as, as somebody put me said to me once one some large chef called jim said to me make sure the food looks good that the peas are all the same color that the chips are golden brown and then they won't know that it's not very good quality steak <laughs> and on a 400 on a friday doing 400 meals he wasn't wrong because uh we, we never had a complaint. So we did, and we, that was the days when we had coffee boys and coffee lounges uh, and be serving sort of Gaelic and all the different types of liqueur coffee. So uh, going right. to Schooner Inn was sort of the forerunner to a lot of the others and was quite outmarked. I remember when I became an assistant manager, I had to buy a morning suit and wear a morning suit. So wearing a morning suit 
in, in a pub in East London. It was a bit strange, really. Yeah. It kept their standards and they, they had a, a public bar, a snug bar and a saloon bar, not including the coffee bar. And they were, you know, they were really busy pubs. Right. Or yeah. restaurants. So that's, that's so where I, you got uh, your start. So that's where I got the start. I mean, the manager there said to me, that you just don't want to be collecting glasses and working in a schooner room for the rest of your life. Why don't you think about catering college? And he spoke with my parents and they were both in education. So I was quite fortunate being in the East End of London that both I came from quite a good family. So uh, although I sort of drinking with the lads and all that type of thing, I, I had a, a good family to sort of guide me the right way. Yeah. And so I, got, I went to Westminster, as it was called, Westminster Hotel School then, which was, it was second in the world to Lucerne. Wow. And I embarked on the restaurant operations course. And I loved every minute of it and did that for two years. Came out of there and I got a job with Hilton International, which just wasn't for me really at the time. Right. Uh, the, the famous story about Hilton International is that's where I actually got my first verbal warning. I was caught eating the uh, strawberry <laughs> tartlets behind the dumb waiter. I have oh. to admit, I couldn't deny it as I had so many of them in my mouth at the time. <laughs> so, uh, but, but that, yeah, but sort of everybody was really, oh, you know, you're going to with Hilton International. And I, I loved Westminster and it gave me a great grounding and uh, great disciplines and great knowledge. But I went back to Schooner Inns and I worked my way up the ranks there and became a manager for them some, for some of their top outlets. And then I sort of worked my way through and I went into contract catering. I was at the Barbican Centre as the catering manager. Then I went, I, I was encouraged for a while. And then I went, I ended up at Charrington's as an area manager. And sort of with a Cockney twang, they decided I was best suited to run the East End of London, which wasn't always ideal because everybody knew where I lived and it was quite a heavily sort of protection racket biased at those days. Right. Yep, and yeah, say no more. Yeah. And yeah. then I did a lot because of what I had learned at the Barbican and through other previous out. Uh, businesses I'd worked in I was very heavily into training so I took this group of East End managers and we set up training courses for them and induction courses and our retention started to increase and we had assistant managers and we had managers that were sort of originally employed as because they could control tough pubs suddenly knew more about wine than some managers in better classed areas right and so when the training manager left a guy called Bob Cooper, who was a fantastic MD, he said, well, put your money where your mouth is. So I then became retail training manager. And then about ooh, six months a year, six months later, a guy called Tony Goddard came on board, who was ex-chef and brewer, ex-Selfridges. And he made me his management development and training manager. And he put me through two courses. That was, I think even now, all these years later, 20 years on has stood me in good stead. One was retail coaching and business effectiveness by a lady called Trisha Brady. And I think she still delivers that. And that was a fantastic course about influencing people and how to manage problems. And the other one was a a program called Coverdale, five day course about how you project manage and you know, what has to be done and how you work out success criteria. And I still write a lot of my proposals in those formats. So I was there and then, Bass Charrington's Bass sort of said to me, "Look, you know, there's, there's a promotion, but it means you're going to Cape Hill in Birmingham." And I couldn't do that because one of my girls was in the middle of her exams. Yeah. So I moved across to Coral, which was a sister company, and I'm the betting company. And I moved across to them as their management development and training manager. And then they said, "Look, really, you know, we're looking for someone who understands retail because they they were more into how many slips could you settle, what's the price of a bet, how do you work out a bet." And we want someone who's into retail and 
likes being an operator but has got that human resources background so they made me original director that lasted about a month and then they made me one of their ops directors and I ended up looking after 300 coral betting shops uh, just at the time that fixed odds betting terminals were coming right. and then they they got bought out by venture capitalists and I decided and I went and ran six of my own leases with the old Bass franchise and Scottish Newcastle estates and I did that for a number of years uh, and then I sold my leases on and I met one of my old MDs and he said look I need an ops director at the tote which was another betting company but owned by the government so I went to them for two years and ran about 400 outlets with them with a turnover about 1.2 billion because we had all the all the fixed odds betting terminals so so and, hang, on, and a, hang on hang on hang on hang on the 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 government owns a betting uh, yeah. a betting yeah, organization gov- yeah what is now the if you look at betfred the betting chain about 500 600 of his shops used to be he bought the tote and the tote was owned by the government and it was run by a guy called i never met him called woodrow wire but right. It, it was a government, the government owned the tote and uh, they eventually sold it on when they came out of betting. But Blame. yeah, it was a bit of a, a bit of a strange, yeah, a bit of a, a bit of a strange setup really. Um, yeah. No, uh, no brown paper bags full of money were changed hands at any time. No, not at all. But if you got, <laughs> t- if you were, if you were offered tickets to go to Cheltenham, you used to have to give them to your um, audit manager because the government had to be aware so you weren't seen to be taking any bribes and you know right. no disrespect you normally didn't get the tickets back because probably they've been given to someone else in government to go to Cheltenham for two days yeah so so yes yeah, so I was there I, I, and then they sort of said to me look do you want to move to Wigan it's a bigger role and I couldn't do that because all my family and my wife were committed to a career down here mm. so that's when I, I left and I, I took my a group of my own pubs uh, oh, well, sorry, I'd had those. So when I left, the, sorry, when I left the tote, I went into consultancy. And I, from all the people I knew, I started running my consultancy. And I did work for Pub is the Hub, a great organisation run by John Longdon. Uh, they got involved with the BII when through a guy called Mike Clist, who who was one of the saviors of the BII. That, that always has to be mentioned because Mike was phenomenal. Right. Um, and then one Saturday night, Jill, my wife, and I were walking through the Strand, and we just saw all these rough sleepers. Uh, and that was sort of end of 2017. And Jill said, my God, they're the same age as our nieces, nephews. And I said, yeah, we've got 80,000 vacancies. So she said, well, someone should bloody well do something about it. So I contacted a guy called Ben Stackhouse, who's got Pub Love, who I'd done some consultancy work for, and he'd become a really good pal. And I contacted Crisis. I met a guy called Dalau Ahmed, who's now, they're both trustees for us now. And I knew nothing about whatever I know about homeless charities is all down to Delal because he's just he's, he's a phenomenal person within the homeless sector and he does so much work and he's he's so commercially orientated as well. Right. So we then got two people into work and then the, the catalyst really came from was was I got a phone call and I was offered a contract and it was a really lucrative contract for betting and. I had to, you know, I went there and they offered me this great salary. And I came home and Georgia said, Well, what are we going to do about Ben? What are we going to do about Dulao? We've got two people into work. We've got a website that's been set up pro bono. And a guy called Robert Neary, from, who was at Freef's then, had set us up as a charity, all pro bono. 
Right. He said, so what are we going to do? Are we going to turn around and start saying, oh, I keep the homeless bubbling for six months. Why I go off and earn an yeah. amount of money? <laughs> so I went back to this organisation and <clears throat> said to them, no, I can't do it. And they said, look, sorry if we've insulted you with the money. And it was every consultant's dream. I'd waited like 10 years for someone to cross out the offer they'd made me and put a better offer in. And that's what they did. And yeah. I said, oh, no, that's no, got nothing to do with the money. They said, oh, do you want to need a car then? I went, no, I don't need a car. House. I just can't do it. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I came home that night and Jill and I closed the consultancy down and only a pavement away started. And then in October 2018 on World Homeless Day, we launched only a pavement away in the House of Commons. And I don't think we've ever looked back since, really. Well, I mean, first of all, it's a massively honourable thing to do, but also, I think the, the interesting thing for me is, and I, I think I'm coming quite late to this, is that actually being open to where your inspiration comes from. I mean, obviously, the, the walk down the Strand was the catalyst to, to you doing something about this, but that's only part of the journey, right? I mean, that's, that's, it's one thing to have the idea, but it's another thing to then try and put the, the building blocks in play to, to actually make it something that, that's viable and robust, so I actually remember hearing you uh, talk about this at uh, a Harry event earlier this year, back in Feb. You remember when we did oh, yeah. events? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the one thing, I remember that. Yeah. 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 The one thing I remember about that was there's quite a lot of things that I think the the general public and I would classify myself in that uh, band until you've heard your your chat is that none of us really fully appreciate how on edge and how balanced we are. We could find ourselves in a situation like that, you know, we're, we're never, we're never that far away. Oh, totally. I mean, you know, I'll give examples. Like I said, and that's why I said at the beginning, I was sort of East end of London, Canning town, Silvertown. I came from a, a very good home. Both my parents were teachers. Both my sisters were very academic, but you know, when you're, you're 17, 18 in the East end of London, you go to the pub and yeah. you know, you go, go to the nightclubs and you know, I, I Probably t- I shouldn't really say this, but I don't ever remember buying a pair of jeans from the shop in those days, you know, because they were always sold in the pub. Right. And I'm sure that I'm, I'm sure that a lot of my old friends that I drank with have served at Her Majesty's pleasure. Well, I know three of them. I know definitely three that did. Right. Um, and I think it's so easy to turn left or turn right. And I was fortunate that I didn't turn left because my mum and dad were on the, kept me on, you know, straight and narrow. I had a, yeah. I had a great family and a great sort of home life. Uh, and then I had the guy, guy called Gordon Bold at Schooner Inns was the one who said, go to catering college. And there was a guy there called Bob Kitchener. So when people sort of say, you know, who, who do you name going through your life? It, it would be sort of outside of my family. It would be Gordon Bold because he said, you don't want to stay in a schooner in all your life like me. And Bob Kitchener, who was one of the food and beverage lecturers at Westminster, who, who just said, come on, you could, this is a great career. It's, you know, hospi- you can't beat being in hospitality. And, um, yeah. and, then, and then I think as, as you know, those things come back and things come back and bite you as well, don't you? I, I was in a company where we were promised we were going to be the next board of directors because we were the management committee. And on, I remember, you know, I used to get up in the mornings, have a cup of tea, be at work by half to six. Now that I had a great family to come home, so loved my job. Uh, and then on the Monday morning, this guy arrived and he'd been brought in as the new chief operating officer. And unfortunately, he didn't like any of us. Uh, and within right. a month, a number of us were redundant. And then suddenly, you know, within a month, I went from having my cup of tea in the garden to thinking, crap, I need to find myself a job. Yeah. Uh, and, and I wasn't untouchable. You know, I went from being sort of in, a, in this bubble where 
everything I, you know, I just ran my operation. Uh, but there were about half a dozen of us who didn't like. And a month later, we were all looking for jobs. So I, I think what you have to, you know, it, it's that sort of turning left, turning right. You never know what's going to come up and bite you, do you? And that's, that's sort of like the pandemic now. And I think that's why hospitality is, not saying other industries aren't, that's why hospitality is so special. You know, where, where do you get the likes of Anthony Pender, Tim Foster, you know, inspirational venues, yeah, Gauchos, Ivy, all looking down. You know, they're all looking down the barrel of a gun. Um, it's, it's... And they just turn up every time I ask for donations, every time I ask for support. It, it's there, you know. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just phenomenal. People like bums on seats, all, all of those types of people. The amount of people who give me sort of pro bono work, you know, uh, people like Asahi who come in and fund us, the support of Green King, all those types, you know, there's people I haven't mentioned that I don't mean to offend. It's just, there's just so many great people doing so many great things for us. Yeah. You know, there's a, a cracking quote out there from somebody called Walter Reuter. Probably got that pronunciation wrong. Bit of a, a, a running theme on this show for me, actually. Um, <laughs> uh, there's no greater calling than to serve your fellow men. There's no greater contribution than to help the weak. There's no greater satisfaction than to have done it well. And I think that's that's something that really hits a note with me in the the sense that for a lot of time hospitality gets quite a a, a bad press about you know all the things that hit the the headlines are all the negative stuff, which to be frank there's negative stuff in every single industry out there. It sh- definitely shouldn't define uh, hospitality. But I, the big thing for me is is that I really think it's just one of the most honourable things to serve and to make people feel special and to give them these moments of joy. And as Harry Murray puts it, you know, we're the industry of dreams. You know, we make people's dreams come true. Yeah. And that comes in, in, in a variety of different forms. And that can be having, you know, saved up to, to go and have a three Michelin star meal that can be to go to a, you know, a, a really immersive event. There's just so, you know, even going to a game of football, there's hospitality uh, involved there as well and it's it to me it's just it plays such a massive part in so many people's lives that you know it just amazes me that um that it's not taken more seriously because it's just i just think it's phenomenal oh it is yeah and and i think one of the great examples that is uh, you know he's our ambassador but you know tom aikins has been phenomenal for us you know it's never about tom Aikins. it's never about his name it's about what can i do for the charity rick how can i help you know Mm. well we're going to lose a we're going to we're going to launch a a serve our soup initiative the sos that we've just launched okay tell me what you want me to do you know his restaurant muse on the one wednesday a month has a another sort of well-known chef turn up and 10 percent of the profits come to us yeah and it's sort of just tell me what I want to do. All the things that Tom's done on the on the cookbook, and I think that just shows whether you're on the pot wash or whether you're one of the top chefs in the world. Like Tom, it it, it doesn't matter. It's an exciting industry, and and it epitomises teamwork, I think, and camaraderie. Yeah. And and that's at the moment, I suppose, like all of us, you know, I, I just can't work out the thinking of, of the government and an industry I've been in for forty odd years now. I just think just wake up and smell the coffee people because you know hospitality isn't in your community hospitality is your community yeah you know people who are on their own and are lonely go to the pub uh, what the what the pubs do to 
to help people and all that type of thing. There's a guy called Jonathan Charles in Norwich. He is a walking charity machine. He's got a craft <laughs> union pub in Norwich. I don't know if he, any day he's not giving out food or flasks or blankets or helping with school meals or helping the veterans. He, he is just, you know, and yet he just keeps on going. And yeah. he must be thinking to himself, I'm probably not going to be allowed people coming in my pub. But that doesn't stop him. He keeps on going, you know. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I couldn't agree with you more. I, I'm a, a a member of my local roundtable, and we do a lot of charitable stuff locally uh, in in the Stansted and Bishop Stortford area. And any time that we're putting on an event uh, or something, we haven't been able to run our our beer and gin festival this year that we that we normally do in Stansted. But you go to the the local. There's specifically one local pub here. Every single time, it's like, what do you need from me? How can I help? You know, it, it's like. Yeah, this is amazing. It's just, you know, anything that gets people interested in drink, and I don't mean that in a negative way. Um, yeah. You know, it's, uh, he's like, how can I? He doesn't see it as us taking business away from him for four hours in one day. He sees it as this is a, an expansion of knowledge to, to the world on, you know, why it's such a, a, an amazing thing to, to be involved with. Yeah. And that's everywhere. And I think it's just, uh, yeah. It's, um, but well, I mean, it remains to be seen what happens over the next few months, I suppose, uh, especially as we, we're coming up to Christmas now. So from the, the charity's perspective, how does the, the process work in terms of, obviously, you know, you see uh, people on the Strand as an example, and I'm you know, pretty much pretty sure if you walk through any town or city in, in the UK, you're going to see pockets of that everywhere. How do you take that and get these people into jobs? How does that work? Uh, it's quite a simple process, really. We act as that conduit. So we supply a jobs board of yep. which forward-thinking, like-minded employers, and we've got about 40 of those, <clears throat> from different sections of hospitality, contract catering with Thomas Franks, Ivy, Gauchos, Strand Palace Hotel, Fuller's, Young's, Best Place in Beds and Bars. Right brew house and kitchen so it's a, a pretty broad spectrum and they can put their jobs on the jobs board but then what we launched at the beginning of covid was was the candidate profile page and that's where the charities and organizations that we deal with in homelessness ex-offenders and vulnerable veterans can post their candidates profiles on that jobs board if there is a job that becomes available the charity jobs broker will apply on behalf of their members so the the employer doesn't get unindated with hundreds and hundreds of CVs just because people are, are applying willy-nilly. They know that whoever applies via the charity and the organisations will have national insurance number, rights to work, access to a bank account, some form of reputable accommodation, and all the, any addictions will be under control and that they won't have necessarily an offence which stops them coming to work for us. You know, So yeah. with our insurers in businesses, it's difficult to take on someone who's committed arson. So there are one or two offences. But then the employer and the charity jobs or the organisation's job broker or the probation service just contact each other. And all we say to the employers is guarantee an interview. And if that interview goes and doesn't go well, the employer doesn't have to tell the individual. They tell their jobs broker. So we're not actually damaging someone who might be still slightly broken or have right. issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If they get the job, they are treated exactly the same as everyone else. The differences are that the employer knows more about an only a payment away member 
than they would do somebody, somebody coming off the street. Because if they see Novis, Sodexo, Milton Keynes College, Western College, they know that they are offenders. Or they see the probation service or HMP Wandsworth. They know that that person is coming, is coming from prison. If yep. they see Crisis, St Mungo's, uh, Centre Point House St Barnabas or other charities around the UK, they know they've suffered homelessness or are in danger of homelessness. And if he's walking with the wounded and they're not forgotten, then they know they're from the military and they may have emotional issues. So they know more about that person. So the bit of the interview of, hi, Greg, where were you between 2.16 and 2.18? And that's the bit where you think, oh, crap, I'm going to have to lie now because if I tell them I was in Wandsworth or I left the military with anxiety or I'm homeless, the normal reaction is, I'm homeless, oh, if I offer you a job, you're going to turn up with a cardboard box and a bottle of vodka and you're going to smell. If you've left the military because you've got anxiety, oh, you've got PTSD and you're going to jump the counter and wallop someone. And you've been in prison. Oh, my God. You're, you're a, a, a paedophile or a murderer. Yeah. You know, so that is taken away. It then becomes a, a more positive conversation. The person then gets a job. They're treated exactly the same as everyone else. And there is a year's emotional as I call it, support from the charity or the jobs broker. So if Fred or Betty have an issue and the employer thinks that there's problems, they just ring that jobs broker and say, look, they start to ask to borrow money, they're looking disheveled, they're not the person they were a month ago. The jobs broker then talks to them and will then come back and say they're having trouble paying their rent or they're in trouble with their utility bills or their family have now moved to Scotland and they're in Birmingham, they want to reconnect with their kids, but can't afford the fares. We will then step in with the money that we've raised and we will pay off that one month's rent or that backdated utilities bill, or we will pay fares. Or for someone who had their bike stolen, they ride to work, we bought a new bike. And we don't ask for that money back. Right. Because we believe that the stability comes through employment. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's very simply how the process works. And we've got two relationship managers now. One, because of what we did, during the, lock, the 15-week lockdown when we launched Hospitality Against Homelessness, Crisis sponsored a relationship manager for us for two years. And the money we'd also raised, and which was supported by an event called Cook and Dine that we did in January, pays for our other relationship managers. So we've got two relationship managers now who are safe in their positions uh, if I never had to do any fundraising until October 2022. Right. They're there because we weren't going to take anybody on if we couldn't guarantee their employment. Yeah. So, and that's very simply how it works. Yeah, I suppose that, I mean, that's, that's a massive part of it as well, right? I mean, you, you, you've got to create the, the stability to be able to, to move forward, to get the foundations. With no foundations, there's, there's no charity. Um, well, exactly. And, and, and what the relationship managers do is that they now have a, they split all the charities and organisations between them and we split all the employers between them. So every fortnight they will get a phone call or an email saying, you know, how are you going? And they also, whoever, say, looks after the Ivy collection, we've got four people at the Ivy, they will keep tabs on those four people to see how they're doing. We've got two people at Gauchos, we've got one at Bills, you know, we've got a couple, we've got a few ex-offenders and that at Green King. So they just keep tabs on it. So it's that all-round wraparound. So hang on, Bob has just left. Where's he gone? Oh, I don't know. He wants to go up north. He's in, he's in uh, Dover and he wants to go back up to, I don't know, Manchester because he wants to reconnect with his family. Well, hold on. We might have an employer up there looking, looking for some, someone to do that position. Yeah. And so that, that keeps tabs and it, you know, it, it makes sure people are looked after really. 
Yeah. Well, I, the, I think that it feels like, if, correct me if I've, I've got this wrong, but it feels like it's, a, it's a, a real collaboration of lots of different components. You know, you're, you're all working together to actually make this happen. It's like, you know, one works with, with another. It's not, you're not isolated and you're not doing everything yourself, as it were. And I mean that in a positive way. But it, you know, without crisis, for example, you know, you've not got that avenue to explore. Uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, it's kind of a real positive punch in the air for collaboration. Uh, the, the, yes, I would think when you first, when we first started, there was a view in some charity sectors of, hang on a minute, you're the booze boys. Um, <laughs> right. um, and, and, you know, we all know that alcohol pays, does play a major part for people who are sleeping rough or, you know, if you're on your own. Yeah. Yeah, and it, just you know, you're having a beer at home and you're on your own. You might have it at five o'clock instead of six o'clock, or that type of thing. Because, or you might go down down somewhere for an hour earlier because you want the company, because you want that camaraderie, you know. But what it's done is it's shown that you know we're what we've now got across all the all our partners is we're the fourth, third, fourth biggest industry in the UK. We made more tax than the defence budget. We serve more meals than anyone else. So. If, if you've got someone and you want to come with us, you're not going to a Fuller's pub. You're going to somewhere that serves really, really good quality food. You're not going to a Young's pub. You're going to one of the largest places like the Founders Arms, you know, one of the largest businesses in London along the river. And we had someone placed there for, for nine months. You know, you're going to work in the, in the Ivy or, or, or Gaucho's or, or Scots at Mayfair. And then you're going off to work in the Backpack Hostel. You're going to one of the great Green King pubs or you're going to Beds and Bars or Brewhouse and Kitchen that brews its own stuff. All those, or, or the hotels, you know, and all this type of thing. And you, you can aspire to be like Tom Aitkins and people to, or, or run your own business. And people look around and I think they're saying, yeah. And, and the big thing that we did was when the lockdown happened, we could have, only a payment away, could have just sat here. You know, Jill and I just, just sat here and said, right, we just wait for it all to lift because we look after ourselves. But it was a case of, no, we need to stand shoulder to shoulder. And again, got together with Delal. And we said, one of the things we needed to do was to support our members. And although everybody was going to suffer by only having 80% of their wages, what we said was that we knew that our members didn't have any financial backup. So that 20% was going to possibly be pretty damaging to their rent or utility bills. So we then went out and started a pay gap fund. And you get people like, you know, caterer.com, Asahi, all all those different types of of people come in and sort of say, yeah, look, you know, we donate to it, individual donations. Uh, And what we did was we were able to pay our members between April and September, they're missing 20%. Brilliant. Yeah. Uh, And by doing that, and, and then that sparked off, you know, or we're going to do hospitality against homelessness. We were, I was approached, can you cook 20 meals? Do you know someone who could cook 20 meals twice a week for us? So I found Anthony Pender at Yummy. And then in 15 weeks, uh, and then he ended up doing 375 meals a day. Blimey. And then in 50, yeah, no, then in 15 weeks, we trotted out 500,000 pounds worth of food. No contracts, no one made a penny. Anthony, Pender and Tim Foster of Yummy went to their teams and said, look, you're on furlough. There's no money involved. Do you want to volunteer? And they volunteered. Thomas Franks phoned up and said, I've got 2,000 meals for you, Greg. Where do you want them? The Strand Palace Hotel said, look, we'll be the holding bay for you. 
you know, Feel Good Drinks came on board, Breaks came on board, Nestle gave Easter eggs. But all of that, again, was that collaboration of, we knew we had the boys at Yummy, we knew we had some other outlets cooking, we knew we had Thomas Franks, but how are we going to source? How are we going to source all this food? And, and, you know, for those people out there who know Paul Pavley, who's a great guy within our industry, he became, he became like our procurement wizard. You know, something <laughs> like, I've got a juggernaut of pasta, where do you want it? What do you mean, juggernaut? Well, it's leaving so and so now and it's heading towards London. Oh, right, okay, well, we can't get it all into the yummy pub in Houston. So Matthew yeah. Beard at the Strand Palace Hotel said, just drop it here. You know, and wow. then suddenly you've got Frank Boswell from Thomas Frank saying, I've got a dozen brand new microwaves for you. Do, do you got any charities or hostels that need them? And so without any contract, no one made any money. We had all this food donated you know feel good drinks with growing drinks in whatever they could yeah. uh, other other companies and i don't want to insult anybody by not naming them there was a whole list of them you know bid food breaks everything like that joe beer breaks was great but paul pavley was coordinating all this and it was through that that tom aiken said i'm looking for a charity and i like what you do so he came on board with the five minute feast uh, and that was cooking me in five minutes using five ingredients and nominate five friends. Yeah, no, I remember that. Uh, and, and, and pay your fiver. And we thought, yeah, we get, we get a couple of dozen people doing that. We then had, we've now got 200 recipes on our YouTube channel and it raised 5,000 pounds. And we just said to Tom, look, we're going to put that 5,000 pounds into the pay gap fund because that will top up what we need. And what we're going to do is we're going to produce a cookery brochure to give to our members of the 18, a choice of 18 recipes that we can put into a brochure and send out. And that's going out next week to our members. And that brochure was sponsored by catering.com. And then Tom just said, well, why aren't we going to do a book? So at the moment now we're going through trying to raise the funds to get a Tom Aikens Only a Pavement Away charity cookbook funded. And that will contain 60 recipes and it will go out in the hardback version on the sale if people want to buy it for conferences and we just need to raise sort of circa 20 odd thousand pounds. People say, well, why are you doing a cookery book? Because, you know, if we get that money raised and then we can get that for sale on Amazon or in the shops or given out, people buy it to give out as conferences instead of giving people diaries and all that type of thing. Mm. Well, you know, that's a, it's money that comes into our coffers. Yep. And B, it raises the brand name. I was going to say and, that that must have a massive impact on profile raising yeah and, and that's why our, our winter warmth campaign where we give out blankets and you know we've just given out on our winter warmth campaign when we can't actually get out ninety two thousand pounds worth of food and clothes that we've shipped into the charities a filler flask we gave out 1500 thermal flasks it's going to be launched today with covent garden that they're doing an auction and all the money will come to us and we will build our buy our flasks and donate them to crisis at christmas and what it's all about is it's only a pavement away is building its brand so the people turn around and say what do you do we get people into work but to get those people into work we need to get funds in to get funds in we need to raise our brand our name to raise our name we need to increase our brand and we need to show that we're not just using the vulnerable people as a pipeline to then fill a number of vacancies yeah. We're doing it because this is hospitality against homelessness. And 12,000 people commit their first offence when they're on the street. So when people say, well, it's homelessness, wow. no. You know, you come out, you leave the army, what do you do if you're just, you know, you're a bit lost? Yeah. You might go on the streets, you might then commit a crime, or you might end up in prison and you come out and you go out on the streets. So, 
it's all those things that, that brings it together that this is hospitality working together and, and what people if any employers are listening to this what they will find is that the work ethic of our members is phenomenal because if you've been sleeping in the doorway and you don't want to go back there you work hard and you want to get up the ladder and we've, we've got a guy who started as a pop wash and he's now a chef to party with the ivy collection Brilliant. we've got a guy who started as a pop wash and he's now at scott's at mayfair with them we've got a guy who came out of prison and he's a pastry chef with gauchos you know that work ethic he said so if you if you don't want to be back on the streets you work if you come out of prison you've got a worse ethic because the harder you work the better perks you get and if you come out of the military you have that discipline and team ethos so what better than picking those three people and the fact we don't charge the employers so we fund all our campaigns by saying to the employers you don't fund the amount of people you get coming through the door fund our filler flasks fund winter warmth support us on cook and dine and and that's how we work yeah i i think it's it's phenomenal and i um you know i did the thing you're on the back of talking about collaboration everything that you mentioned on the back of that there really kind of demonstrates to me that ultimately humanity wins you know there there's this we're all going through this horrible thing at the moment where you know life has completely changed around us but the coming together of people you know there's lots lots more of that happens than than bad stuff happens um yeah. but it's just the bad stuff that gets the press yeah it is yeah because you know what better than thoughts you know it's like anything i was always the person that you know saying you, you do the crime you do the time if you're in a doorway you're an addict and if you come out of the military then you know you travel around the world so some law wars come along and you've got to go and fight I, th- I think the problem with the the three groups of vulnerable people we deal with is they're not sexy you know their society's not their society <laughs> their, their society's not and, and that's what a guy said to me i met, I met a guy on brighton beach last year doing filler flowers you know and he admitted to being an alcoholic. He'd been an alcoholic since he was 21 when he was on the stock market. He said, I quite like being an alcoholic. I enjoy being on the street, but I've never met anybody as well read as him. Right. He, he read every day. He sort of went around cleaning up all the debris on Brighton Beach and he read a different newspaper every day. And that guy should have been a pundit on Brexit because he knew what the Independent thought, what the Observer thought, what the Mirror thought, what the Sun <laughs> thought, what the Mail thought. Because he read it all and he had this really, really sort of balanced view. And he said, your problem's going to be, because I spent about, ended up spending about, Jill and I spent about an hour with him. And he said, your problem's going to be, Greg, is that we're society's norms. We're not sexy. You're not, you're not, you know, you haven't got a major celebrity behind you. You're not doing something that people can, can cry over. You're, he said, we're in a doorway. People notice us, but they don't see us. He said, the more people you can get to see us rather than notice us is the big step. You know, and it's like, well, he, they've been in prison. They're come, you know, coming out of prison. They've done their crime, so they go to the bottom of the ladder. But yeah. we know of a homeless guy who stole a sandwich and a bottle of water, couldn't pay the fine, so he did ended up doing twelve months in prison. Jeez. And in actual fact, all he did was steal three pound fifty, and then because he couldn't pay the fine, he committed burglary. Yeah, and, and then that, he wasn't well, really good at it. You then think about actually how much that would have cost to to, to send him to jail as well. Forty eight thousand pounds. Every wow. offence is forty eight thousand. Really? Jeez. Uh, yeah, yeah, and that that's I think that's just touching the iceberg. The, the other question I always ask people is, do you consider yourself to be honest? You know, right. and do you want me to answer that? My, no, I think my, I think my, <laughs> dad, my, my my old dad would would probably find this quite humorous. Actually, he was a Ted master, so every end of every summer term. He, we always, you know, had the pencils, the rulers, the rubbers that weren't going to be used because a new stock was arriving for the next year. 
Was that a perk? Or did he steal it? Yeah. And then I got a group of my regional directors together who wished to work for me. And I said, same question. Do you consider yourself to be honest? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, so when you used to add so much mileage on so many miles on your mileage from, that was just a perk, wasn't it? Oh, I didn't know you knew I did that. You were young, just had a baby, but you were a damn good area manager at the time and I knew you'd go far. So I was I complicit to that. But if you'd have taken that amount of money out of the safe in one and go, that would have been fraud. Mm. And you'd have been sacked and possibly gone to prison for theft. So I said the other one, what about you on a Thursday afternoon when you always say you're doing competitive visits and I know you're playing golf? Have you embezzled company time? So what's the perk and what's the theft? And yeah. then when you ask people that, and, oh, right, okay then. You know, so you work, you work in an outlet. I, I knew a mate of mine who always thought it was the norm that he was allowed a free drink and that if he wasn't bought a beer at the end during the evening, he'd have a couple of pints at the end. Hold on a minute. You just, if, if you stole that in those days, if you'd taken that six pounds out of the till, that is theft. You'd have been sacked. You don't think drink, drinking two pints of lager, you think that's a perk. Mm. So, you know, a number of people are where they are because of the situations they're brought up in. Like I always go back to, you know, I was damn lucky what I grew up in, but I met a guy in prison who said, look, I'm on the wrong housing state at the wrong age. I've only got a mum. I've got more uncles than anybody. I'm not academic. I've got a school that Austin should have closed rather than put in special measures. And I was, they, they should have put me in prison when I was born, Greg. He said, because I was destined to go to prison. Because the only way I was going to survive was by joining the gangs. Right. So yeah. it's those... It's those things that change your perception. And like I say, you know, I'd see someone on the street, I'd give them a fiver, donate to a veteran's charity. I thought, well, if they, you know, they've done been in prison, done the time, do the crime. Whereas your perceptions of what those, of the skills those people have changes. But without becoming do-gooderish, they're, they're, the, they're in me, in my non-charity experience, I think the do-gooders are the dangerous ones. You've got to see this as commercial commercial practical and do it for the right reasons we do it because we need good quality people in our industry and we do it because we can give people a chance to turn their lives around and get back on the ladder but we do not think that we can change everybody and we accept that some people don't want to change but those who do then they need that conduit they need that pathway to be able to do it without carrying the stigma of a mistake they made previously. Yeah. Yeah, I, well, that's, that's a really interesting perspective. I've said never thought about that uh, at all. But actually, the, the point you make about you, and you, you've kind of educated yourself on, on this as well. But the, uh, you, I think the, the words you used earlier in the, in the conversation were forward thinking employers, because I think the vast majority of people out there are probably sit in the same boat as you when you know, when you see somebody homeless you see them or you you're aware that they're there but you don't really see them but actually how it could just be a simple thing that throws you off course right and if you don't have a support network around you as you said with your you've got a you know good family I'm I'm the same and a you know a, a really wonderful network of friends who are always there if you need, but if you don't ha- have that, I can imagine it's really, really easy to just spiral down. Oh yeah, it, it must be without without a doubt, mustn't it? You know, if, if, as, as one guy sort of said to me, you know, he's, he was on a housing day. He said to me, "Tell you what, Greg, the thing you don't want to be is you don't want to be a victim of the gang or crime, and you don't want to be on the bottom run, you know." And then you'll meet someone who's been homeless, and people always say, "Oh God, they're homeless," you know, they're sitting in the doorway. I would challenge anybody. 
to have the tenacity and the courage and strength of will of the people we've got as our members who are employed who were rough sleeping. You had to be in that doorway and then have someone think it's funny to pee on you or to have your money that you collected stolen mm. or to be freezing cold and it rain and someone's nicked your sleeping bag. You know, what we do without homeless charities, I think this country would have to wake up and think, crap, we're not a very civilised society. You know, without the likes of crisis and Street Link and Shelter and House and Barnabas, Centre Points and Mungo's, all the phenomenal, and the smaller charities that do all this phenomenal work, we think, but these people have great, great strength of character, phenomenal strength of character. To actually, A, survive in a doorway, I couldn't do it for a night. I'd be on too much of a wuss. And then B, <laughs> you know, and then B, to go into work. And you've got to go into work and do something knowing that are people going to look at you and think, mm, homeless, ex-offender. And, and also knowing that you haven't got that much money behind you and you've got to rebuild your life. Mm. But, you know, at the moment, I've met some people who are in hospitality or heard from some of the, the sort of the, the charities who are out and about on the streets that if we want to, if, if we want to change our perceptions, then I would think every one of us could find someone who's suffering at the moment. Yeah. Really suffering, you know, and you know, did I lose my job? Was I made redundant? You know, I can't get a job, but I know I'm really good. And those types of things. So I think it's what we do is we give people that, that opportunity and, and all credit to hospitality. You know, we've, since the 1st of September, we put seven people into work. But what the pay gap fund does, it encourages the employers to keep them because they know that the government's paying 80% or whatever or 60%. And then we're paying that 80%. We're keeping that, that, that pay gap going, which keeps them, keeps them employed, you know, and, and yeah. other pe people step forward. We've got, we're about to launch a, you know, CPL are giving us training modules for nothing for anybody who becomes a member with us. It's just getting people and giving people the opportunity and realising that, you know, you've, you've got to be sensible about this and don't suddenly be evangelical and think you're going to go out and save the world because you can't. But if you get a homeless person or an ex-offender or someone who's suffering from the military into work and they stay, it's not about numbers. And that's one of the reasons when we've applied for funding and grants, we said, oh, you know, you, you, you'll get 900 people into work, won't you? No. You know, that's why people have said to us now, you know, people from politics or maybe one or two celebrities have said, yeah, now where do I have my picture taken with a homeless person? It's not about your kudos. It's not about your personal brand. Yeah. And that's, and I, and I think the person who epitomizes that is Tom Aikens. It's not about him personally. Selfish. Whereas other people have approached me and said, I would have a photo done with him, won't I? No, bugger off. It's not about you. Yeah. You're big enough and ugly enough to go and get your own fan base. Don't use someone who's trying to rebuild their life because you want to be a kudos and pat yourself on the back and think your viewers uh, have turned around and said, oh, isn't it wonderful what they're doing? That's a lot of old crap, that. Yeah, I agree completely. The, the, absolutely the wrong place to, to try and gain personal gain. That's yes. a sentence. You're running a, a Christmas campaign, let's call it that, because we're near, nearly at Christmas. Tell us more about that. Yeah, that span off of the, uh, the five-minute feast. So I just thought, God, we've got all these hospitality workers who are looking down the barrel of a gun. So that's we started the COVID Resource Hub, which is sort of like a one-stop shop where they can get advice and find all the links to 
Universal Credit, how do they get jobs outside of the industry like Tesco's post office, NHS that might need people? Hmm. Um, how do they find mental health support and all that through licensed trade charity and mind and, all, and those types of things? And then we thought, well, what else can we do? You know, we've got to save our souls. And so we came up with Karen Wallen, who does loads of work for us on a pro bono and a lady called Sarah Swayland. And we came up with the only a payment away SOS, and that's Serve Our Soup. And you've got to cook a soup with five ingredients, donate five pounds, nominate five friends, take a picture of it, and then Tom Aikins will pick out the winner. And that soup will be the starter at our Cook and Dine event next March when we have 260 industry people served by 50 industry people. And the only professional people there are probably uh, Janine and her team from the Ivy, Kelly and Ashley McCarthy, who've got a beautiful pub up in Yorkshire, and Tom Aikins and a couple of his team. The rest of us are all volunteers, you know, so there's soup gets spilled and wine glasses don't always make the restaurant. <laughs> yeah. Um, but we have, some, we have some fantastic people do that. But serve our soup. Any much, you know, we're asking people to donate a fiver, but we're asking, asking people to get involved with it. And, and if you're struggling on, you know, if you're struggling and you can't afford that fiver, still do the soup. Still make the soup, take a picture of it and send it into our Instagram account. Uh, and you might appear in our soup brochure because we, ha- we have a soup brochure as well. And this is everything that does to get the brand known. But, but SOS was about, you know, save our souls, serve our soup. It was, um, and, and that's, what we're, that's what we're pushing out. Yeah, well, very best of luck with that. I'll, uh, I'll happily uh, pump that around the, um, any social that we do around uh, the release of this particular episode. Thank um, you. In terms of next year, uh, looking forward, etc. Obviously, we're we're still under there's the question marks, but uh, it feels like we might be getting closer to to coming out the other side. What's the plan going forward? Uh, the plan for next year is uh, we've got cook and dine plan for March. End of March, we've got a conference yeah. in April. We're doing five cities fill a flask in July, where we take out thermal flasks filled with chilled water and give them to the rust sleepers. Uh, we've got winter warmth plan for November. We will do serve our soup again. And our aim is to get 250 people into work. We will have a, a group of people who are ready to go to work, who have that ethos. Many of them will have come from hospitality and now be on hard times. But our aim is to get 250 people into work. Uh, and a big one, one of the questions he sent me was biggest regret. And I suppose where this links in, before only a payment away, my biggest regret was I didn't go and do a degree or do a business degree when I was actually an ops director. Because I think if I'd have done that, I might have been promoted, but I didn't have that degree. Right. Is that my biggest regret now? No, my biggest, biggest regret at the moment is not being able to find two things, not finding myself a philanthropist and not getting on BBC Breakfast. Right. Uh, and they're my two biggest regrets at the moment, because if I can get the media coverage, that'd be fantastic. And if I can find a philanthropist, that will give us the money to do even more things. Because yeah. we're a small structure, Jill and I don't get paid. The only people who get paid are the two relationship managers. But if we've got a philanthropist in, there's other things we can do and there's other ways we can help people get into employment. We could take another relationship manager on. We could, we could take uh, uh, someone who's going to look at how we organise all our projects. Not that we're not doing it now. If we don't get the money, we'll survive. But if there's a, you know, through this or through any connections, someone knows a philanthropist who wants to support a charity where it does what it says on the tin 
75 people we put into work in two years. That returned 2.5 million to the UK economy. Wow. Because you weren't having to pay £20,000 for someone sleeping rough. You weren't having to pay £48,000 for someone reoffending. They were then paying their income tax. They were then paying rent, and then they were then had disposable income. Mm. So on a conservative value, our 75 members returned £2.5 million to the UK economy. That's phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. And we have a return on investment and that's, you know, why it makes it such a, why I think people like it because, oh, hang on a minute, I can see that if I donate that money or I support someone with their rent, I'm actually going to get it back because my taxes can be spent on other things to help yeah. the country grow. But actually, I probably why that therefore is uh, a success is the fact that, yes, okay, you're, you're, you're doing something incredibly honourable, but there's a real pragmatic underlining of this uh, as well you know there are wins in many different places it, it feels like yeah 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 there's wins in 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 lots of places that we can do because as, as i keep saying everything you know the, the greater the brand grows the better it is and, and again through through tom we're we're linking up with a an app called twisper that's being launched you know and, and that i'm just waiting for the dhl parcel to come in uh, from geneva because they just donated a thousand gloves Right. to winter warmth and they're going to come in today jill and i are somewhere out and then we're going to post them up and ship them out to four charities we've got top golf who have donated 600 pairs of gloves uh that are sort of children youngster sizes and that we've got four charities that that's going out to and they're arriving tomorrow morning so there are a lot of win-wins but the biggest win is that we are a conduit we will be the charity for the employment of vulnerable people into careers in hospitality that's our that's our statement and we do that through statement through stability, through employment. That's the win. Because you can put someone in a home, in a house, in a flat. But if they haven't got a job, if they haven't got a purpose, what are they going to do? Yeah. You can put someone in work, but if they're having to get changed in a doorway, they're not going to last long in that job. So that's mm -hmm. why we say it's the stability through employment and fund us, and then we can help with things like the rent. But, you know, anything we do, I have to say on it, when people think, oh, yeah, it's, you know, learning as you go along. I can never, ever thank someone like Delal Ahmed enough because he has. You know, I read him and say, what about this? No, you don't want to do that, Greg. No, right, okay. What about that? No, you don't want to do that either. And then he, because he's seen it and understands the charity world and how it works, you know, and we've been approached by a foreign TV station, the equivalent of the BBC in another country. Right. But they want to go out and find someone who's ex-hospitality, lying in the doorway. You know, these these people aren't other people's cannon fodder. These people aren't there to be exploited. Come yeah. and talk to one of our members and see what it's like to turn around. For God's sake, just turn a, tell a positive story, you know? Yeah. Oh, uh, and, uh, and that's why we would love to get onto something like BBC Breakfast because they're, they're more the positive story of the media than, than some of the other channels, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I, 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 I believe that if if you want it to happen, it's just a matter of time. And you know, you talk talk to enough people, somebody will know somebody somewhere, and then you know, yeah. Bob's your uncle, as it were. If people want to learn more about what you're doing, what's what's the best method for them to do that? I assume your website is probably a great place to start. Yeah, go on our website. It's got it all there: www.onlyapavementaway.co.uk. So uh, that's got everything on there, and. Uh, you know, and again, when you look at, and people can't really see the jobs board because it's there, but you know, there's a lady called Dawn Redman at Hospitality Jobs UK. You know, she donated the money to start building the jobs board. 
And then Polaris Systems came in and, and they built us a back office suite that's got trackers on and we know we can help people now if they're on universal credit, all this type of thing. Yeah. So all, all the info, but the other information is there, you know, if we're in the news, what campaigns we're doing, how to get involved, how to donate. And, and I just continue to be amazed, you know. Again, we've had someone come forward today and saying for every thing they do with their customers, they're going to donate a fiver. And the guy rang me up and said, he's a fiver, okay, Rick. It's a fiver more than I had 30 seconds ago, you know? Yeah. And if I, if I, if I can get sort of 300 people donating a fiver, that's £1,500 and that's going to help you pay someone's rent and their utility costs and support, you know, the work we do. Yeah. So I think, you know, some, you put in one of your questions, what some of the challenges we've got, you know, there's some damn good charities out there, big charities that are doing phenomenal work. You know, you could never, ever take away what crisis and, and the others do and, you know, Macmillan and all that. But if you want to help the economy and see people getting into work, then come to us on the fact that you know that we work with the homeless charities and we work with the Ministry of Justice and, you know, we work with some of the veterans charities. Yeah. Well, no, I, I absolutely salute you. And I, I think what you're doing is amazing. And anything I can do to, to add weight or help spread the word, I'll, I'll happily do so. Um, oh, that's fine. Doing this has been great. Thank you. All these opportunities are are fantastic for yeah, us we, to have. We got there in the end, didn't we? We did indeed. We did attempt. <laughs> yeah, my technical skills aren't brilliant. So, uh. Uh, we, uh, we got there in the end. That's the important thing. Great stuff. Well, look, thank you very much for your, your time today, Greg. It's been an absolute pleasure to, to chat and learn more about what you guys are doing. I'll put uh, some links in the show notes as well um, that will appear on the website. Uh, so I wish you all the very best through this, this next period and beyond. Yeah, and thank you very much for your time. It's great to talk to you, Phil. Cheers. Yeah, likewise. Take care. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. And there we have it. Superb to get some time with Greg, and I think we can all agree that the work he's doing with Only A Pavement Away is incredibly important. If you know anyone who can help Greg fulfil his wishes of finding a philanthropist and getting him on the BBC Breakfast, then please do get in touch. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.